Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is Alan Levinovitz. He's an associate professor of religious studies at James Madison University, where he teaches and researches a wide range of topics, including classical Chinese philosophy, religion, and science. He's the author of The Gluten Lie, and he's on the podcast today to talk about his new book, Natural, How Faith in Nature's Goodness Leads to Harmful Fads, Unjust Laws, and Flawed Science. We talk about how naturalness has influenced virtually every aspect of our lives, from food to sports to how we live and how we die. We talk about the far-reaching harms of believing that natural means good and how to love nature without worshiping it. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alan, and as always, if you want to support the show, you can do so by clicking subscribe, clicking some stars, and sharing with your friends. Enjoy. Alan Levinovitz, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could just start with a simple question. What are some differences between your normal routine and your so-called core routine? Ah, yes, my quarantine. Yeah, well, so some main differences. My, my daughter, uh, seven-year-old daughter, almost eight, is home from school now. So my wife and I are trading off with homeschooling. Um, I'm trying to keep my exercise routine pretty much the same as it usually is. And my classes have all moved online. So I've switched my big lecture class where I, you know, drive down to JMU and teach for uh, online lectures. And then I'm doing Zoom class with my, with my smaller my smaller upper level group and you're still sticking to the rower yes yeah you've been keeping up on it i love i love my rower and and fortunately it's uh you can keep you know i got it in my shed and i don't i don't have to worry about other people being in there or anything like that it's uh it's still great i love my concept too awesome so have you learned anything about yourself throughout this time of isolation yeah i i think i'm finding that I'm more attached to interactions with strangers than I even knew before. I've always enjoyed walking around, you know, just kind of wandering around town or talking with people. But one of the things I really miss, obviously everyone misses their friends, but I just miss making small talk with people, whether it's the, you know, cashier at the store or someone happens to be sitting next to me reading a book that I, that I recognize. Um, that's something, it's, it's a small it's a small thing, but it, it means an enormous amount to me. And I, I really look forward to having that, the, the, the sort of small parts of the web of community that we participate in back at the end of it. I agree. Yeah, it's those simple interactions, which I imagine may be very far out still. Even when we get off lockdown and we're still having that small talk with people, there's still going to be that awkward distance that you always have in the back of your mind. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I enjoy, you know, I mean, you're talking about routine. One of the things we do now, uh, my wife and I and our, and our daughters in the afternoon around four or five o'clock, we try to just walk around our neighborhood and talk to people on their porches, you know, because you can do that from a, from a safe six foot distance. And I'm, I'm hoping actually to, to keep that up. That's something that's a kind of bright side of discovery of this that, that I really enjoy just walking around and having short conversations with people on the porches in the neighborhood. So maybe, maybe that'll be something that comes out of it. Yeah. Does part of you kind of wish that this would have happened last year when you were writing your book? So you would have almost had this forced writing time where there wasn't anything else to do? You know, I, I'm not, surprisingly, and I don't know if this goes for other people, I, I have picked up some little things. I know, I guess everyone's trying to, you know, bacon sourdough bread or whatever. I, I've been trying to up, up my origami game, but I found that uh, when it comes to dif- difficult work or work that, you know, sometimes it can be tough to write or tough to do uh, difficult research, I've had, I've had a little bit of difficulty motivating, so I'm not sure 
that having all of this time at home is actually making me more productive. Um, obviously, I wouldn't want to, I don't want to launch a book during a pandem- pandemic and that's, that's what's happened now. But mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, I don't think there, I don't know if there is a good time for something like this. I just hope we all come out of it okay. Now, speaking of that origami, is that something that you picked up when you were in China or that you always wanted to try and now you finally have the time? No, it's something I, I it's something I did as a kid. Uh, my dad actually really, really enjoyed origami and taught me origami and, and weirdly, and then I sort of forgot about it. And then, you know, it's something I, I started up again. Now I thought, hey, that seems like a kind of, a kind of quarantine hobby. And, and it was still in my, it was still in my muscles, kind of crazy muscle memory. I sort of vaguely remembered how to make a crane and an iris, these sort of classic origami designs. So it was, it was, it was neat to, to rediscover that um, in, in, in this time. Yeah, those hobbies are great because it's the only thing that you can be focused on. It's like doing a puzzle or something or almost like a mantra. Yep, exactly. My wife's right across from me doing uh, doing jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> so she's a puzzler and I'm doing origami. And you, you talk about a mantra. One of the things that was really important for me with my, my upper level class was we would do a ritual. This is a classical Chinese philosophy class. And we, we picked a ritual for the beginning of each class, which was reciting the, the, first, the first lines of the Tao Te Ching. And that's the sort of early Taoist uh, book that maybe maybe some of your f- listeners are probably familiar with, and it was really important to me even during quarantine to keep up this memorization ritual and recite it at the beginning of class and learn a new character each week. So th- th- those sorts of little rituals, those mantras that they're they're mindless but they're also mindful at the same time, right? That that kind of stuff can really keep you keep you sane and 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 empty you while also filling you. Could would you mind sharing that mantra? Well, yeah. So in, Chi- in Chinese, um, where we are so far in our classes, uh, the the first line is really beautiful, very symmetrical, lots of repetition. It's Dao Ke Dao, Fei Chang Dao, Ming Ke Ming, Fei Chang Ming, Wu Ming, Tian Di Zhe Shi, You Ming, Wang Wu Zhe Mu. And that means, basically speaking, the Dao that can be Daoed or or can be spoken is not the constant or ever-changing Tao, the name that can be named is not the constant or ever-changing name. Uh, without a name, it is the, the heaven and earth's beginning. And with a name, it is the, the mother of the 10,000 things. So wow. that's, that's, that's what we say at the beginning of each class. And you know, my students, many of whom have never taken Chinese, certainly never taken classical Chinese, have really, have really worked hard on it. So I'm really, I'm really proud of them. Very cool. So I want to talk about your new book, Natural. And I know you said it's a strange time to release a book during a pandemic. So it's basically a very rigorous look at how naturalness has influenced virtually every aspect of our lives. Am I right? That's exactly right. Uh, I, I, I have chapters on all kinds of things. You know, people think about naturalness a lot in terms of food and medicine. It makes a lot of sense there. I look at it, how people have thought about naturalness in terms of economic theories, in terms of sexuality, in terms of how we should regulate sports, right? Because for me, what I realized is you can't really understand the power of this word natural and the idea of what nature is if you don't look at it in, in all of these contexts and see how, how broad and how powerful it is, not just in specific situations, but, but in every aspect of our lives. This word holds more weight or more power than possibly any other word. I, you know, I, I agree. Um, even, even more than a word like God, which obviously... You know, not everyone in, in the history of the world believes in a monotheistic God. Some people are atheists, some people are agnostic, some people are polytheistic. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the word nature and the word natural in various forms, right, in various translations, you know, in classical China, it was zuran, which means, you know, sort of literally the self-so, the way things are naturally without interference. 
that concept comes up everywhere, right? It comes up in uh, the meditations, uh, you know, Stoic meditations. It comes up in, in Taoism. It comes up in Catholic theology. And so it is, it's a word with even more appeal than, than something like God. And it also feels secular, right? It feels not religious, scientific, right? People talk about nature and you think evolutionary biology or something like that. So it also has, it has a sort of combination of scientific and what I argue theological or religious power all in one word. And, and that's why I think it's so important. Is the role that nature plays in your life a self-organizing force? Yeah. So, so I'm actually, you know, I, I love natural things right in front of me. Um, you know, I would show you if we were on video, the, the, the shelf right in front of my desk has a bunch of incredible rocks and minerals. And right behind me in my office are, are a bunch of different and unusual plants because to me, it really is in a very real sense, miraculous that there is a force that is beyond and before human beings that is able to make things as, as intricate as shells and fossils and crystals and plants that, that look like, you know, they have mathematical formulas embedded in them, Fibonacci sequences, fractals. And that, that to me, is, that to me is, is mysterious and magical and valuable in itself. So, so nature and naturalness really is incredibly important in my life. Is it safe to say that nothing was unnatural before humans and natural is synonymous with before we messed it all up? Well, what I want to say before we messed it all up, that's actually the argument of the book. So one, people, people tend to think of it that way, right? Unnatural, if you look at Shakespeare's plays, right? Unnatural is a synonym, as I say in the book, for everything that's wrong, right? Unkind and unnatural, inhuman and unnatural. Um, so I agree with you that a good way to think about natural, and there's a lot of sort of postmodern philosophers who are like, everything's natural, right? We all came from stardust. Humans are natural. Chemi all chemicals are natural, that sort of thing. I, I don't believe that. I think it's reasonable to distinguish between that which was ordered by human will, that which we decided to order or change, and that which came before us, right? So technically speaking, before humans, there was nothing unnatural. And it, it may be tough to, to separate out what is natural and unnatural. I think it's a continuum. It's not black and white, right? So Yellowstone Park isn't completely natural, right? I have a chapter about this. You know, there's roads going through it. There's people that maintain certain aspects of it, but it's certainly more ordered by forces that aren't human than New York City. And it's, mm -hmm. it's worth distinguishing between Yellowstone Park as more natural and New York City as less natural. Where I'd want to push back a little bit is that I, I don't buy into what I see as a religious myth, which is that there was once a harmonious time, right? A kind of Garden of Eden. And then humans interfered with that harmony through their sinful technological manipulations of things. And so unnatural is inherently bad and natural is inherently good. And in fact, what the book is really trying to do is make sure that we can love nature and respect nature without worshiping nature. If I had to summarize my approach, it's, it's that we need to have the ability to love what's natural without worshiping it. Or as John Stuart Mill would say, in another sense, the word nature means not everything which happens, but only what takes place without the agency or without the voluntary and intentional agency of man. That's, that's exactly right. And that Mill essay that that quote is from is a really terrific essay, right? Because Mill, Mill in that essay talks about the confusion that the idea of naturalness has caused and the way in which people, you know, kind of 
not, I don't want to say thoughtlessly because that's negative, but without thinking about it, substitute nature for God or natural for holiness or purity. And so I, yeah, I agree with, I think that definition by Mill is an, is an excellent one. And I also uh, agree with him when he says that that word has caused a lot of problems for, for how we think about everything from law to our, you know, to our own basic everyday life. Mm -hmm. When we touch the small golden cube of pyrite crystal from Spain on your windowsill or a house plant to see if it's real or not, we can say it is natural and wasn't formed by humans or it's unnatural because humans didn't make it or form it. Absolutely. And so when someone asks, for example, you know, is this diamond natural? And if that person values the diamond more because it is natural, I think that makes sense. I, I, I think distinguishing between a diamond made in a lab and a diamond made in, the, in nature's laboratory <laughs> under the earth, those are two very different things. And I think it is completely reasonable to think that, to, to want a diamond that was made in the earth's lab and not in a human lab. But I, I, what I don't think is reasonable is to point at every aspect of our lives, from what we eat to how we raise our children, to how we act in the world, and say all of that should be natural because natural means better. Right. The earth lab. I like that. And, and sometimes the design from the earth lab isn't always the best, like you talk about in your book with natural births. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. So, you know, the, the, you think about evolution, right? The, the, as, as I say in the book, the, the gears of evolution are greased with death. They are greased with the death of organisms that don't make it to reproductive age. And so if our ethic as human beings, for example, is to try to save organisms, you know, human beings, before, so that they can make it to reproductive age, in a sense, what we're saying is, look, our ethic does not line up with the way in which nature is arranged. We want people to live longer, perhaps, than their naturally allotted lifespan. My dad is 91 years old, and I can tell you from talking to anthropologists, despite what people might want to believe about pre-industrial societies, there are not very many hunter-gatherers who made it past the age of 90. And, you know, there's probably more in the history, there's more in LA, more people over 90 than there are in the history of hunter-gatherer societies. And that's, and that's, I think, a good thing. I like it that my dad's alive at 91. Um, and that means that in certain ways, my ethic, my ideal world is different from the ideal world or the, the world, not ideal because nature doesn't have morality that would happen if we let nature run its course. That is one way to measure life in terms of length. But also if you look at hunter gatherers and the way that they lived and things that they went through, you could also measure life in depth. I don't know. Some could argue that hunter gatherers did have it better in some ways. Yeah. So there's some, there are some really interesting books out there that, that and, and I think rigorously argued books that take this perspective. There's a book called Against the Grain that makes the case that hunter-gatherer lives were not, you know, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short in the, in the Hobbes quote. And actually, I, I spend one of the chapters in the book talking about this opposition, right? There's people like Steven Pinker, you know, so-called Whiggish thinkers who think that everything's just been getting better and better and better and better, basically. And we are at the best time in history and if you go back further and further, it gets worse and worse and worse. And I think that's wrong. As you've pointed out, there, are, there is a kind of depth and value to the lives of, of people who lived in pre-industrial societies that's, that's really incredible. And in many ways, their lives were better. Mm -hmm. But also, in many ways, their lives were worse. And one of the things I want everyone to do is get out of this kind of simple binary of either modernity good, ancient world bad, or ancient world good, 
modernity bad, right? I, I, I'll tell you a story. I went to Peru to visit um, semi-nomadic hunter-gatherer people, the Machiganga, and I, I had still in my mind this romantic, you know, isn't it wonderful, for example, not to have any artificial light? Isn't it wonderful to be able to see the stars at night? And, and how much are we missing out on that? And when I went to this village, they had just had artificial lights installed, solar-powered lights in their main square. And I was talking to one of the guys, and I said to him, you know, how do you feel about having these lights installed? And he looked at me like I was just nuts. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, are you happy, are you, happy you have these electric lights now? He said, well, yes, of course. I said, well, why is that? And he was just looking at me like I was totally insane. He says, we can see at night now. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I realized that, that, that in a way, romanticizing what it is like to not have lights at night is, is a product itself of having those lights at night. So, so it, it's more complicated, I think, than, than people make it out to be. And that experience in that village in Peru, in the, you know, in the middle of the rainforest, eight hours away from even a small city, was really eye-opening to me. Uh-huh. And it's, we're, we're sort of like products of what we know, what we're used to. I mean, if you're brought up that way, if you're a part of a, say, like Lakota tribe, you're not going to want to trade that lifestyle, that wild lifestyle. Well, it depends, right? I mean, you, you might, you might not, right? So the people in this village, um, they, they want their kids to learn Spanish, for example, uh, the adults in the, in, in the village. Not everyone, right? And people have different feelings about, about modernization, but they like salt in their food. Mm-hmm. And so they want to sell, you know, jewelry to tourists in order to be able to afford seasonings that they wouldn't otherwise acquire. And there's, there's a lot of costs and benefits to that sort of thing. As we all know, you know, I'll tell you, there was, there was no one, there was not a lot, there weren't a lot of problems with, with type two diabetes in this village, but at the same time, that's not the only index by which we, you know, as you said, we measure a quality of life in, in a certain way. It's almost impossible to take hunter gatherers and compare them to someone living in a city, right? So another thing people point out is, right, if you're living in the, if you're living in, in the jungle, you will have a much more intimate knowledge of nature than mm-hmm. someone like me who's living in Charlottesville. And that's true, right? But at the same time, I know more about the history of the universe than the people living in that village. Does, does that make, you know, I know about the Big Bang. They don't know about the Big Bang. I know about the germ theory of, of disease. They don't know about the germ theory of disease. Does that make my understanding of the world richer than theirs? Well, in certain ways it does, right? But I also can't identify plants very well. And when they walk out into the jungle, they can identify them immediately, right? So we have all these different ways of understanding the world and being in the world. And I think it, it's really important to, to pause before we decide that one is better or richer than the other. That's right, man. And that's why this conversation is so important because we justify truths based on what's natural and what's not. And we judge people on their actions in this way. Like we consider unnatural behavior, appalling human behavior. Absolutely. And yet, if you look at the definition of unnatural historically, it, it, it shifts over time, right? So it doesn't, it's not so long ago that interracial marriage was understood by many, many people as being something appallingly unnatural. And so it's important, one, to realize that what we understand as natural is itself a function of, of the values that we have acculturated in ourselves. And the other thing is that even if something isn't natural, that doesn't mean it's wrong. Even if it turns out that there are no gay animals, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean, like, whether or not homosexuality is ethical has nothing to do with whether 
we can turn up gay penguins. They're, they're entirely irrelevant uh, when it comes to understanding the, the morality of human action. So I think it's really important not when, when we're trying to argue for a particular position, not just to keep looking into what I call the mirror of nature and trying to find ourselves there. I think it's important to realize that while nature is valuable, it is not the equivalent of the Ten Commandments for, for how we should live our lives. It's at the root of basically every argument. What we want and what we do and what we eat is more natural than someone else. And I'm just as guilty of this way of thinking. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny. I, I, started, I started all of my, you know, I started this book about, you came out of my first book, which was about food. And one thing I was surprised by is I would find every, every dietary trend, basically. So I talked to a vegan. I talked to a paleolithic dieter. I talked to a carnivore. And, and not only did everyone argue that their lifestyle was, was best, right, in every possible way. It was best for the health of the world. It was best for their own personal health. It was best for their mental health and for their physical health. They also argued that it was natural. So vegans would argue that veganism was natural, and carnivores argue that carnivory is natural, and paleolithic dieters argue that you know, paleo diet was natural. And, and it really surprised me just how important it seemed to people to, to make that extra added claim. It was as if they were saying, God approves of my diet. Um, and of course, like with religion, it turns out that there's a lot of people claiming that it is their religion that God approves of. And, and with naturalness, it's no different. And you said something that I thought was interesting about when vegans and carnivores argue about what's natural. You're more interested in why do we care what's natural in the first place? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I really want people to just stop and ask themselves, well, what do I mean by this word? And why do I want it to be applied to my lifestyle and what I eat. And I think if, if, if I can succeed in getting people to understand that, that that word is a little bit more complicated than we assume and to stop using it in the way that we do, then, then I will have succeeded in, in my goals with, with my book and my work. But I mean, this is important. One of your earlier books, like you said, it was about food. We create identities for ourselves and our tribes through rituals. And one of the most important being the ritual of eating. This is how we articulate our values. Yeah, so one of the one of the one of the things that's become really important to me while researching naturalness and also just in terms of my own approach to religion and spirituality is that I find I find comfort in uncertainty and mystery. I think that there are many things we don't know. I think there are many questions that don't have easy answers. I think that it might be the case that actually the bedrock of the universe is, is not answers, but questions and mysteries. And so I'm hopeful that during times like this, when people really find, when their identity is being shaken and when identity is really important to people, I, I would like people to become a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty and mystery. I think it can be problematic when we turn to dogmatic certainty and when we find comfort in insisting on tr on the truth with a capital t of of our tribal identity i'd like to see tribes that insist on on their own uncertainty as as a way of making meaning that's really interesting that you bring that up this whole idea of uncertainty because i think before the agricultural revolution or before we put food under lock and key and we were continuing the natural chain of events i guess one could say of the evolutionary process we did that to remove the uncertainty of the future, like starvation and predator danger. Absolutely. Much of, much of what we do as human beings, and I think this is, I mean, I'm no evolutionary biologist, so I'd have to ask people. Um, 
but but an anthropologist. But I think a lot of what we do is is attempt to remove uncertainty. Uncertainty is unpleasant to human beings naturally. But at the same time, I don't know that that's necessarily what's best for us. In other words, trying to remove all uncertainty may be what we are naturally primed to do in our lives, but it might not be what's best for us in, in the world as it currently exists. And many religious practices, right, whether it is mindfulness meditation in Buddhism, whether it is the kind of reflections on death in Stoicism, these are not natural practices, right? These are in certain ways, despite the fact that people like Marcus Aurelius or people like the Zhuangzi, uh, you know, Master Zhuang, these people say, hey, what we're really doing is, is accentuating your true nature. These kinds of practices are ways of overcoming certain tendencies in ourselves. And in that sense, they're artificial, right? They are literally techniques, which is the same root as techne, art, which is the root of artificial or technology, again, something artificial. So when we use these spiritual technologies, if you will, one of the things I think we should recognize is that we are using them, these technologies, these artifices, these arts, to overcome certain natural tendencies in ourselves. And and there's nothing wrong with that. I love that. I spend so much time contemplating this difference between nature and human nature. Whatever we do is within our nature, technically. Right, exactly. No, that's that's exactly it. And yet I wouldn't want to, a lot of people take one more step from what you said, Nick, and they say, okay, well, that must mean that everything is natural. If human nature, if a part of what human nature is, is to create technology and create artifice, and we're a part of nature, then everything is natural because it doesn't matter whether we created it or nature created it. And, and I don't agree with that. I still go back to the definition you came up with earlier, the one that, and the one that you backed up with Mill, this idea that what humans do, what we will, is, is helpfully understood as, as unnatural. But that's, that's okay. We have, there's this great line in H.G. Wells. He says, humans are unnatural animals. And, and, and there's a paradox in that, right? We are, we are natural. We are biological. We were born of Mother Nature, you know, quite literally, even if you don't want to think about Mother Nature as a deity, which I don't. We were the product of, of nature. And yet we are also unnatural. And dealing with that paradox honestly and in all its complexity is, is something we have to do. And we have to do it open to the fact that there aren't going to be easy answers and that the product of our reflection is not going to lend itself to the sort of dogmatic certainty that is so comforting, especially in traumatic and uncertain times like this. Mm -hmm. One more thing I wanted to say about food before we, we, we move on. In 2018, the FDA said the term natural means that nothing artificial or synthetic has been added to a food that you wouldn't normally expect to be there. But the agency avoids an official definition. Have they changed that since? No, although there's a, they haven't, although I poured, I, I combed through all of, because they solicited comments from people, right? This was one of those, one of those times when the FDA asked for public comment, a lot of people submitted comments, and I, when I was looking through those comments, I was surprised by how many people said things like, explicitly religious statements, like, we should only, natural should mean food the way God made it. Uh, I've seen celebrity doctors say this sort of thing, right? What's the difference between natural and unnatural? Well, did God make it a certain way? Then it's natural. Did humans make it? Then it's unnatural. And of course, it's that end of the FDA statement that's really important, right? What people wouldn't normally expect to be there. Because one of the things that we do when we think about natural is we confuse natural with traditional. So no one mm. thinks to, to label fermentation 
an unnatural process or drying things or curing things. And yet the, the, the whole history of food is a history of unnaturally manipulating those things that nature has given us, starting with cooking and moving through salting and curing and pickling and preserving and jarring and canning, all these things which, you know, you look into a, person, a natural food enthusiast's house, right, and they're going to have a pantry full of, of, of dried herbs that they got from their garden and, you know, even looking into a garden, right? What is a garden but unnatural manipulation mm-hmm. of your environment? And right. so, Again, this is, not, this is not a knock on gardens. I love gardens. I've gardened myself. It's a knock on thinking that we can simply assign the word natural to what's in a garden when what we really mean is traditional or grown by me or food that I think is healthy, right? All of those things are, are values that we ascribe to the idea of naturalness without really reflecting on, on what we're doing when we, when we say that word. Mm-hmm. Natural as it relates to food, though, is going to be very unique because there is no good or bad in nature, right? But there, but the way it affects your body, some, some, you can't really argue that sometimes, you know, like if you're eating too much processed food and it's causing you, you know, prediabetes or diabetes, obviously that's bad. But nature operates without intentions. It's only when we come along and add a narrative to it that things become so. Right, and the, and this gets this gets complicated because you can, and this is where I think, you know, religious theology makes good points, and also just in, in general thinking about nature as harmonious. There is a sort of intentionality built into nature in the sense that you know my eyes are meant, quote unquote, for seeing, right, and my my stomach is built for digesting things. So in that sense, we can look at organisms and we can say in a certain way that there is, there is a, an intention in, in their design, so to speak, right? This is, this is where intelligent design people take off and, and go running. The, the important thing to understand is that just because there's an intention built into our biology doesn't make it the right intention. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Uh, ballerinas. Ballerinas are not using their feet in the way nature, quote unquote, intended. They often end up with their feet bent in unusual ways. You can tell if someone has done ballet for a very long time, but that doesn't mean that ballet is wrong or bad. It means that we as humans have chosen to use our bodies intentionally in a way that is different from how nature intended, and that doesn't make our choice good or bad or right or wrong. It's just, it's just a feature of that choice. The same thing goes for football, right? Just, just because you're, you're not using your knees the way you want to and you blow them out doesn't, doesn't mean that that was a bad decision. And I'd even want to go back to food, right? Food is not just about health. It's really important to understand that. Food is about, like you said, culture and ritual. And if grandma loves Kraft mac and cheese, you might want to think, not you, but one, might want to think hard about showing up at her house and saying, I don't know, grandma, I don't eat that stuff anymore. I'm on a new diet. Because food isn't just about your health. It might be about grandma being able to express her love for you. And just because you think that doesn't, just because grandma doesn't express her love for you in the way that you think lines up with what, what nature wants you to eat doesn't mean that you should ignore grandma. 
That's right. And we see this argument in sports too. We'll say someone someone is a natural or has natural talent. And then someone comes along and hits 14,000 home runs in a season. And then they get caught taking a natural performance enhancers and they get in a lot of trouble and we judge them for their appalling human behavior and say it's unethical. Right. Sports are a great example of where the natural unnatural binary is, is really fuzzy. I actually went, uh, one of the chapters in, in the book is about sports and I went, to a natural bodybuilding competition because I was really curious about what that means, right? What does natural bodybuilding mean? Bodybuilders in general have, have, have one of the most unnatural physiques you could possibly see, right? So what do natural bodybuilders look like? And when I went there, it became clear to me there was, there was almost nothing natural about it, right? Here are all these people with artificial spray tans. They've, they've gone on unusual sodium sodium fasting cycling diets to get their subcutaneous you know their their subcutaneous distance the distance between their where do we draw the line yeah where do we draw the line right and and for these people what they were really saying when they said natural bodybuilding they they were really saying as far as i could tell something like bodybuilding that is safe because it avoids certain pharmaceuticals that are dangerous right but even it, you know even there You've got natural bodybuilding, you know, many natural bodybuilders, female natural bodybuilders have, have implants. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, that's certainly not natural. So, so what is it exactly that they're saying, right? And, and it would be better, I think, if they just said, well, this is bodybuilding where we don't use certain kinds of, of drugs that we see as dangerous, right? Call, right. call it a day. That's, that's what it is. And I actually think that's fine. I think it's important in certain ways to ban some performance enhancing drugs, but we shouldn't be banning them and then saying, well, the reason we ban them is because they're unnatural. That's, that's not actually why we're banning them. It's much more complicated. And we should just spend one year where every sport spends a season where they allow it all and just see how much more entertaining it is. Oh my gosh. I, I sort of did imagine, you know, what would it be like? Well, you know, we already, the one place where we do see that in a certain way is bodybuilding, right? So when you get outside of natural bodybuilding, these athletes are athletes that are, they're doing whatever they can to get as built as humanly possible. And I can only, I can only imagine what, 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 what football or basketball would look like if we allowed the same sort of latitude. At the same time, you know what we'd also have is we'd have a bunch of 12-year-olds on steroids. And I don't know, that, that, that's, I think that's worth trying to avoid. Oh, 100%. And it also makes me think earlier, you mentioned diamonds. And when we think of money and diamonds and gold, like these things are natural and only have value because of the unnatural story that we attach to natural materials. Am I right? Yeah. So, I mean, value itself in a certain way is, is an unnatural idea. It is, it is something that humans create through their, like you said, through the stories that we tell. And one of those stories, one of the most important stories is natural origins. That, that's a story that's just valuable in itself because it's connected with mystery and wonder with this force that came before us. So if you tell someone, hey, this rock, I mean, the rocks that I'm looking at on my desk, you know, if I say, hey, this, this fossil here is, is 300 million years old, is that intrinsically valuable? Will it help me live longer? No. Do I, do I need it in my house to, to realign my chakras or whatever? No. But it is valuable simply because of that story, simply because that story is valuable to me. And, and, that's, and that's fine. That's good. That's a part of what it is to be an unnatural animal, is to value things for the stories that, that we tell about them. 
Right. If you found out your wedding ring or your jewelry was fake or formed by humans, it immediately loses its value and you would be pissed. Yep. That's exactly right. And that's not, and that's not in the same way that if I found out that this, that, that the fossil in front of me was actually made in a factory, I, I, that I would be sad. It would be less valuable to me. And the, and the important thing again here is to distinguish between the value of a natural fossil, which really is built into its natural origin story, mm-hmm. and the idea that all things good come from nature, or that nature is the source of all value. That's the mistake that we don't want to make. And that, that goes back to what I was saying earlier, the idea that we should love things that are natural without worshiping nature. Yeah, I love that. The origin story holds so much value. I mean, it's just goes to show like pyrite is literally called fool's gold. That's that's exactly right. And and yet at the same time, it, pyrite, I mean, you, I, I encourage your listeners to go out and see all the incredible forms that pyrite can take. You have you have fossils that turn into pyrite. So you mm-hmm. they they look like it's called a pyritized ammonite, and it looks basically like Midas has just touched a fossil. Or you look at these cubes of perfect Spanish pyrite, like you mentioned, the one that I have on my desk. So it comes in all these incredible forms. To a gold miner, they're useless. They want gold. But to me, who's interested in the fact that they come from nature, th- th- they're very valuable. Right. Yeah. When I was a kid, we used to go down in this little ravine. It was called, there's a little tunnel called the blood bowl. You could collect pyrite throughout the ravine there. And that was before you knew the story, before the story was implanted in your head that fake gold is bad. And it was so cool. Right. Exactly. It's interesting too that you said, right? Tell a news story and the value changes. Mm -hmm. Now I haven't had a chance to read the book, obviously, but do you cover dying of natural causes? Is this another one? I do, talk, I do talk about death and the role of natural causes in death as an example of a way in which our understanding of naturalness doesn't square with our actual values. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of dying of natural causes, when people say that traditionally, right, again, to go back to Shakespeare, an unnatural death meant, for example, you were murdered. You were murdered. Exactly. <laughs> you were murdered, right? So an unnatural death meant a death that came from immoral action, right? A bad, a violation of moral laws. So right there, you already have this unusual way in which natural and unnatural when it relates to death already starts crossing that line. On top of that, you talk about, you know, an unnatural death, you might think of a child's life being cut short Mm -hmm. as something unnatural, right? You expect someone to live out their natural years. This is something that comes up in a lot of the Taoist texts that I talk about. You live out your years. That means to live to an old age. But the truth is, go to, go to pre-industrial hunter-gatherer societies, it's false, as many people say, that, that hunter-gatherers you know, died at an average age of 35. That's simply not true. Most hunter-gatherers, if they made it past the age of five, had a fairly good chance of, of making it to 60 or even 70. Um, so the, that kind of thing, the idea that hunter-gatherers died at 35 is false. But you know what? Your odds of making it to age five were lousy. A lot of kids in pre-industrial hunter-gatherer societies died before the age of one. So often that in some cultures, you wouldn't even name your children for many months because it was so likely that they would die. So is that, that's a natural death. Um, it's, not a death from un, it's not an unnatural death, but it's something that we have collectively rejected. We don't let infants die. We try to save them. And that leads to an unnaturally high um, fertility, you know, fertility rate. It leads to unnaturally high populations, which in turn force us to have unnatural forms of food production. But the alternative is 
really, really high infant mortality rates. And that's, that, that is another part of the engine of evolution that we've decided we don't want around. So if you're not living long and dropping dead, then you're most likely going to die of unnatural causes, some would say. Yeah, there's, you know, the longer, the more unnaturally long our lives are, the more unnatural forms of death we are going to have, the more unusual kinds of illness we are going to have. And again, this isn't, this isn't to say that we can't prevent these things. There are, there are ways of living more healthfully that can prevent chronic disease. And that's, that's just a fact that's, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a physician, I'm not a nutritionist, but we all know that that's true. The important thing is to make clear that that's not because they are natural. Nature does not want everyone to live to 95 with a perfectly sharp brain. That is not what nature wants. That is not what nature intended. Nature does not want every child to survive. So if we have ways of eating and behaving that allow all of our children to survive past age one and that allow our elderly to make it past age 90, it's okay to recognize that all of that's unnatural. That's fine. That's okay. It doesn't mean it's bad. Um, and, and just because the, the foods and behaviors that help us live to that age might look in certain ways like what we associate with naturalness doesn't mean that this is all part of some kind of harmonious quasi-religious system where we've discovered the one true way to, to live. That's, that's what I really want to avoid. And then myths are narratives and they help us to make sense of the world. Through the lens of mythology, we create an identity for ourselves. Let's talk about reconciling dueling myths because that is important for reaching shared goals. In the same way that you talked about tribal identity earlier, our, our stories, our myths, our myths specifically, which is a special kind of story. I like to say myth, myth is, as one, as one scholar put it, myth is ideology in narrative form. Mm -hmm. So if you want to figure out who someone is, look to their myths. And those myths are important for our identity. They tell us who we are, right? We have stories we tell about ourselves, stories we tell about our communities. And that, that is an important part of identity formation. Unfortunately, those myths can end up being the, the, the frame, the glasses through which we see the entire world. So if the, if the idea, the Garden of Eden, right? Here's the, maybe the most famous myth in the history of the world. If the idea that things used to be harmonious until we humans did something wrong and fell from grace and were punished in the case of the Garden of Eden with, with pains during childbirth and agriculture, if that's the myth that makes our identity, we're going to see that everywhere, even if the world itself is more complicated than that. Because you have to keep in mind, right, myths are inherently, by nature, oversimplifications. And if what we care about is truth, then all of us with all of our different myths are gonna to have to introspect, understand that those stories are oversimplifications and be willing to meet other people outside of our myths in the messy, complicated world of reality. Well put. And I think when people hear you talk, they sense a sign of intellectual strength because you understand the myths that guide your mind, but you've developed a flexibility to change your mind when new data comes in. It's hard. It's hard. I find myself often, as all people I'm sure do, I find myself wanting certain things to be true because we all, we all come to, to the world with stories that we're telling. And it's, it's also difficult because 
other members of my tribe have those stories as well, and they might not be as willing to reject them. I mean, I'll give, a, I'll give an example here um, at, at the risk of offending some of your listeners, who knows, um, with politics. But, um, you know, I am personally not a supporter of Donald Trump. Most of the people that I know, my friends, are not supporters of Donald Trump. And yet what I find is the, the story, the almost mythic story of him as a terrible person and terrible president makes it impossible for people to ever acknowledge if anything here his administration does is good. So the example of being tougher on, on China when it comes to, say, intellectual property, right? There was a part of my brain that was like, that does seem like a good thing, right? This really seems effective. I was in China. You know, I lived in China for two years. I knew how, how bad they were about respecting intellectual property. And yet, seeing that truth, if you're occupying a different kind of myth, it endangers your membership in a tribe. And it, and it makes you feel like your myth is not as stable. And, and, and that's a bad thing, right? Because at the end of the day, what we really want is to see the world as it is, not, not as we want it to be. Great point. Yeah, I'm reading that book, Righteous Minds. And that's what it is basically telling me to do. Like question my own narratives and my own stories. Like, why do I think this way? Why do I believe this to be true? Right. And as, as we have a more globalized world, whether people like it or not, when we can meet each other online, when our economies are intertwined, there's going to be an exponential increase in the number of myths that are encountering each other, if you will. And also, we, we now have a shared responsibility for the health of our societies and for the planet. If we want to be able to dialogue with other people and come to shared consensus, you know, a consensus on how to move forward with everything from how to treat the environment to how to produce food to how to organize our economies, we are going to have to be able to get outside of our specific myths so that we can listen to other people and, and change and adapt and compromise. It's, it's going to be essential moving into the next hundred years. Right. We should invite that. We should welcome what is foreign to us. That's how you grow. Absolutely. And yet there's going to be people, you know, I know I, this happened to me, you know, when, again, when working on food, I would, you know, if I'm talking to someone, for example, who, who thinks sugar is deadly and I'm telling them, Hey, I don't know. I think it's more complicated than that. But the idea that sugar is deadly is, is sort of mythically important to their identity. Perhaps they, they lost 50 pounds um, and changed their lives after adopting a, a no sugar fast or something like that. Mm -hmm. They would come back at me with, well, what do you think? Should people drink Coke and eat Twinkies all day long? And of course, that's not what I'm saying. But when you're inhabiting a mythic world, you see everyone in terms of binaries. Either people recognize sugar for the unholy poison that it is, or they support eating as much sugar as possible at all times, right? So that's, that's what comes out of inhabiting myths, is that, that it becomes more difficult to see nuance and complexity in the world. And, and sometimes you even, people will say one thing and you actually hear different words. That's, that's how powerful myths really are, right? It's, it's, it's really something. We talk a lot about stoicism on here. So I wanted to talk to you about another idea that's often compared to Buddhism. The Stoics had a phrase, live in accordance with nature. Some think that this actually means live a virtuous life because that is what you've been designed to do or what we're capable of doing using reason. What do you think? Yeah, so there, there, there are some really, there's, there's some interesting scholarship on the, on the meaning of 
nature and natural in the in the context of of ancient Greece. And I'm not, I, I, and you know, in ancient Rome, the, the the philosophies that that Stoicism gave birth to. I'm not an expert on those times, but I can say this: the idea of nature as it applies to humans is inherently complicated. So in the meditations, when you read about what it is human nature to do or be, that is itself, I think, a reference to the H.G. Wells idea that we are unnatural animals. And so our nature, what we are quote unquote designed to do is in part to confront this paradox of our own unnatural nature. And in, in Chinese philosophy, where I'm more familiar with it, the idea of, of ziran or self-so, right, to align yourself with things as they are, and there's some resonance with, with stoicism in that idea, is not so simple as just being natural or aligning yourself with the natural world. Because after all, as I like to point out, the people who are writing these words, they're doing it using ink that was manufactured, with brushes that were manufactured, on bamboo strips that were manufactured, none of this emerges out of the order of nature. So whatever it means to align yourself with your own nature is much more complicated than simply looking at hunter-gatherers or looking at what the world is like before technology and then aligning yourself with that. That can't be what it means. So it has to mean something else. Right. I think the reason we're having this conversation or are interested in this distinction is because deep down there's a foundational belief in the value and the beauty of this natural world. How can we love nature and value what's natural without worshiping it? A great parallel analogy is freedom. Freedom is incredibly valuable. It is something without which we cease to be human, basically. Uh, we value it legally. We value it personally. So we love freedom. We want to protect freedom. At the same time, freedom is not the source of all value. It is one among many values. Sometimes we sacrifice freedom. We have children, for example. Children take away freedom in a certain way. Sometimes we follow laws to be part of a political community. That is giving up some of our freedom. So freedom exists alongside other things we value, beauty, love, community. And, and sometimes there's a trade-off there. In the same way, what's natural is valuable, but it's one among many values. And if we, it's not the source of all values. So if we understand being natural in the same way that we understand being free, you start to realize that it's something you can care about. You can love it. You can think it's essential to, be, to living a, a good life without also thinking that if something is unnatural, it's bad. In the same way that just because something makes you unfree doesn't make it necessarily bad. And is that the conclusion that you came to, that favoring a choice because it is natural amounts to a superstitious mistake? Yeah, that, that's it. It's, it, it's not, not, that, not favoring it because it's not. I, I actually think it makes sense to favor something because it's natural in the same way that it makes sense to favor something because it, it contributes to your freedom. What I, what I want to say is it's superstition when you believe that everything that's natural is good and that anything that goes against what is natural is bad. That becomes superstition. That becomes a kind of religion that is, that is untrue. All right, Alan, if you'd be so kind as to share what's on your shelf, are you reading anything good right now? 
Yeah. So, so I'm, I actually, believe it or not, and I, I know you, you might think I'm making this up. I actually have uh, The Meditations is one of two books that's on my bedside table. Um, I'm, I'm almost done with it now. And next to it is a, a book called The Black Cauldron. It's, it's a young adult book, uh, part of the Chronicles of Friday. And so I'm, I'm slowly going back through. It's a, it's a five book series. Um, Black Cauldron is the second book. So I'm reading, I'm reading those two books and, and find them really wonderful. And that's, those, are, those are the two books that are, that are currently on my shelf. Awesome. And then what would we find in your Spotify search history? I don't have Spotify, but, if, but my music that I'm listening to right now, there's a group called David Wax Museum that, that I really love. I think they're incredible. Um, Brandi Carlisle, she's a, she's, a, she's a folk singer songwriter. Mm-hmm. is is really terrific as well and i've been listening to john prine recently because he passed away and he was really 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 important to me as 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 a musician i'm a guitarist and 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 i really loved his music so it was pretty shattering when he when he died so those those three i, I highly recommend david wax museum brandy carlisle and, and john prine they're all in my rotation right now cool and brandy carlisle actually did a good cover of john prine Yes, it was amazing. I just saw that the other night, uh, and I was telling telling my parents, "You got to go listen to it." And then, and then I was telling you know telling them to listen to John Prine stuff too. There's a great Dear Abby song. Uh, it's called Dear Abby by by John Prine. It's just a wonderful song. So, uh, it, not familiar maybe to to people who haven't listened to a ton of John Prine, but if you haven't heard it, it's incredible. Forgive me for butchering his name, but what lesson from Masters Wong has most positively impacted your life? It's a tough question. It's a good question. Um, Master Zhuang or the or Zhuang's a, has has taught me a lot. I'd say the most important lesson he has taught me is that sometimes what look like rules to follow when it comes to philosophy are more like exercises for strengthening your mind. And so when I read the Zhuang's, I think of it as going to the gym for my, for my spirit. And in the same way that you don't necessarily, you know, I, I go on the rowing machine, but that's not because I, I'm going to encounter a rowing machine when I'm walking around town and I'm going to need to row really hard. So we don't go to the gym to engage in the exercises that we do in everyday life. We go to the gym to strengthen ourselves in hopes that that will, that will prepare us more generally for everyday life. And I see the Zhuangzi as kind of a, a gymnasium for for my spirit and thinking about what i read in that way has has really changed my perspective on what philosophy should be thanks for sharing that man so last question if you could have a drink with anyone in history who would you choose and why i gotta say my my first my initial reaction is funny you think i'd have to think about it a lot but i'd say thomas jefferson um i'm here in i'm here in charlottesville and this is his hometown i visited his house in monticello um and the guy's just a he's just a beast of a of a of a renaissance man i mean he was a he was an incredible musician he was interested in archaeology he was interested in food he brought you know he got popularized ice cream he was a gardener he was into architecture and i, I just love to i feel like he'd be an incredible conversationalist with a with a, a set of things to talk about that that's really incredible so i, I want to sit down with him and he probably has some good i know he had a, a lot of good french wine so i could i could crack open a bottle of his wine we could talk Oh yeah. All right, Alan. So people can find you at alanlevinovitz.com and on Twitter at Alan Levinovitz. You got the new book out. Where should people go if they want to learn more about you and to keep up with what you're doing? 
Um, yeah, Twitter's a great place. Uh, if if you Google me, I've written things, uh, you know, a variety of things for places like Wired or The Atlantic. Um, if 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 people are interested in in how my approach to to the world can can engage other topics, I wrote a while back about uh, the game of Go and and artificial intelligence for Wired. So I, I recommend that article. But Google around, you'll find you'll find my name associated with with a whole bunch of stuff, and and that's a good place to start. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me, Nick. It was, it was really a pleasure. You're a terrific interviewer. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakoba.